Welcome to the Talk and Chatter Experience, powered by Gasoline Alley Harley-Davidson and M33 Productions. For all your photo and video requirements, get in touch with us today. My guest today is Stephanie Redman. Stephanie is a professional motorcycle coach and racer. She has educated hundreds of riders, but specializes in getting the full potential out of younger racers. Stephanie is based in Andorra for two thirds of the year, preparing riders for the CEV Championship. Within the podcast, you'll get a few tips on riding, some ASBK predictions for 2022, and you'll get a few stories regarding coaching for the last 10 or 12 years. Some crackers in there as well. If you get the chance, head over to YouTube and hit subscribe, give us a rating and review on iTunes, and we'll be back with another show very soon. Welcome, Stephanie Redman. Thank you. It's good to be here, actually. You you reached out to me, which is a a nice feeling on my own end, but uh, I've seen you traveling overseas last year, or for years now, and uh, you're someone that I wanted to get earlier, earlier on, but you're never damn in town. So, um, Mm, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's... Like I watch all your stuff and I love the, love what you're doing and yep. the way you promote the sport and I don't know, it's just cool, it's fun, but it's also informative and yeah, like your style. Awesome. Well, who's Stephanie Redman? We'll start with that. Uh, I'm a coach, I guess is probably my main identity. Yeah. Um, coach 49, I run under. 49 was my race number. Yep. So that's where that came from. And coach obviously is a coach, but I also like coach 49 because for me I'm just like one of many coaches you know mm. I'm not I'm not the only one there's heaps out there operating and I think we need a lot in the sport to to keep boosting it so yeah that's me mainly I'm a coach and outside of that it's pretty much bikes everything if yep. I'm not coaching I'm doing something with motorbikes motorbikes or push bikes or something with wheels eh? yeah the cycling and stuff like that yeah. yep with the um the coaching thing and someone I was going to ask you a bit later on but we'll touch on it now um, it seems very, very popular. Uh, there's, there's not popular, but it, it's a requirement now. Hey, more than just there's a couple of riders at the start that were using coaches, but now it's a real requirement for riders, isn't it? Yeah, it's actually really cool. Like, you know, motorsports an interesting one. Coaching is not as highly regarded as a lot of other sports. Like, you yeah. go soccer, football, everything. They have a coach, swimming coach, tennis coach, yeah. coaching you know, staff, multiple coaching coaches. Staff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just it's just a standard part of the team. But in motorsport, it's not like that. And I know when I got into racing, you get in, you just kind of start figuring it out. I got to a point where I was like, oh, okay, I need a bit of help, and people would give you some advice and stuff like that. And um, it wasn't until later that I got coaching, and I didn't realize how beneficial it was mm. because no one really talks about it. It's not a big thing. Um, it's mainly seen as a benefit for road riders or, you know, track day guys and stuff like that. And once you get to a certain level in racing, people just, I don't know whether it's, you know, the additional cost or whether it's just not something that's been as highly regarded as it should have been. Yeah. But for sure, it's not as prominent. But now you're seeing things like uh, Casey Stoner coming into GP, you know, and the effect that that's having on the team. And you got guys like... uh, Chase Davies. Yeah, Chaz Davies back, stepping yep. into into Aruba and VR46, you know, have their coach in there as well. So it's starting to be seen as more of like a, an essential role yep. in developing riders. And it is because it's not just about the bike. Because no one masters it, does it. Like, no one's ever a master, are they? I... Uh, what is what is a... Like, you know... What's, per, what's perfection, What's eh? perfection. Yep. And on a bike, there there's no... Nah. The measure is the lap time, but it's always you know, improving, so it's hard to tell. Because it's interesting, like, you, you look at uh, Valentino Rossi, nine world titles, great history, went for many years without a coach, but the last probably five years he went and got a coach to, yep. to help with, like, if 
if someone in that field is looking for that and, and has ridden bikes for, you know, probably 37 years maybe, probably since he was four or five, um, everyone needs a coach then really, hey? Yeah, I mean, he's he's such a good example and I love using yep. um, Rossi as an example because his career is ex- like spread for so long that he's had to adapt. Mm. You know, there was that period there where he's, he was struggling and you see his style change, the way he rides the bike. Yep. Everything had to change to adapt to the different bikes, the different riders, the different tyres. So, yeah, he's a really cool example to to show why coaching is important. When when you were racing, obviously, we'll get more into that as well, was it just one day that you went, okay, I, I need coaching, like I'm missing I'm missing a, a chunk here, there's something that's missing? Because you had a relationship with a, with a school for a long time, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah, was there just one day? There was, and uh, it was actually when I tried out to be a coach for the California Superbike School. So, really? Yeah, yeah. I'd been coaching prior to that yep. out at Morgan Park with uh, like Dave Fuller with Advanced Rider ART. Training. Yep. Yeah, I was actually there when that started, which is kind of cool. And that was, you know, they're still going and doing an awesome job. And uh, it wasn't until I went to the Superbike School and tried out to be a coach and they make you sit through their curriculum as like a level one student and then they give you an exam at the end of the day and stuff like that. And it wasn't until I sat through that that I went, I don't know as much as what I thought I did. And I was like, there's actually a lot more to learn. And it wasn't it wasn't because I was, you know, arrogant and thought oh, I know everything. It was just because I hadn't been exposed to the fact that there was more information out there. So that yeah. was kind of the day that I went, yeah, there's there's more to this and I want to know what it is. Wow. Had had you read had you read the books obviously before? Uh Yes and no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, so um, when when I applied to try yep. out, because they were bringing the school to Queensland, so there was a couple of Queensland locals up there that they reached out to and said, yep. hey, we'd be interested in having you try out. Uh, we recommend you read the books. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. And being, I think I was like 20 years old at the time, yep. you know, racing pretty fast, thought I was, you know, pretty not, good. not too bad. Yeah. And uh, I read the book and I'm like highlighting little bits. I'm like, oh, yeah, that seems important. That seems important. Yep. And uh, nah, I just skimmed through it. And after I, after I'd coached for a couple of years, I went back and read the books, and I was just like, there is so much gold in here, mm. but I just wasn't looking for it at that point in my writing yep. career. And I guess that's where it comes back to what I'm saying. Like it just, it wasn't that highly regarded to me. I was just like, oh, you get on the bike, you put some good tires, a good suspension, and away you go. But yep. there's the whole uh, rider element to it as well. That's cool. Yeah. That's and and that's I think that's what people need to need to hear like um i've never done one right i've ridden since i was three years old i've never done um i've done dirt coaching but i've never done um like super bike school right yep filmed a few so i've been able to listen to a diff- few different things but never actually physically done it but ferg here he's done level four yep i think level three or level four and he's at me you know you've got to do it you, it'll unlock it'll unlock you as a person as a rider um yep yeah and it'll, you'll find a lot of bad habits with yourself that you should delete yeah, it's cool. It, um, like as riders, we tend to do too much on the bike. Okay. Like we actually, a lot about the Superbike School, it gives you the foundation of what you need, but it also removes the things you don't. Yep. So it's it's kind of cool. Like you end up finding like, oh, you know, I'm doing this, but I don't need to be and I'm making it harder than what it needs to be and, and things like that. But for sure, there's just, uh, we jump on a bike as a kid, you know, you jump on a push bike and 
a two-wheeled steering object steers differently to anything else. So you jump on it, you fall over a few times, you get back up and eventually you figure out how this thing works. And from there on, you progress to a motorcycle. But no one really teaches you why it does what it does and how you should act to control that the the best way possible. So you just kind of figure it out as you go with like most things in life, I guess. But yeah, we tend to add a lot lot of complications in there that don't necessarily need to be in there. While while you're saying that, I'm thinking thinking of something. Like, we all start as a blank canvas, right? Yep. So, what makes someone ride fast that hasn't had coaching? Is it is it they've got a different mindset to be able to just push? Because like we all start, we all fall off, we all do our things like on push bike. Wonder what makes someone a better rider? Because is it just a natural thing that comes through? There's definitely some natural skills and attributes that you need as a rider, Um, like vision, for example. People, Yeah, people that uh, have better vision generally are faster riders. Okay. Like they they are able to process and see distance and stuff like that. Like they've done some studies on it and and shown that a lot of the the top riders at the moment have very good vision. So, you know, if you've got poorer vision, stuff like that, can make it harder. Not yep. not saying it's impossible or going to you know hinder your career, but it's definitely attributes like that yep. can can play a part. But uh, yeah, feel for traction is probably one of the biggest ones. Yep. You know, if if someone has good feel for traction, they can generally push a lot harder because they can find the limit. Um, but I don't know. I'm not 100 percent sure how to answer that. No, to be honest, enough. it was just something that I thought of when when you said about you know we all learn from like a piece of rubber, you yeah. know, and then you fall off, you pick it up and then something leans this way, you lean against this way. Oh, okay, then I'm going to counter-steer something here, you know. Like yep. you learn it but you don't know what you're doing. No, no, so, you just instinct is just taking instinct, over. Yeah. Yeah, yep. Where did it, where did it, like from memory, it was Minimoto Parklands? Yes. Where did it start for you? Is that correct? That was Minimoto, yeah. that's That was the start. So I had a neighbour a couple of doors down. He used to race dirt track. Right. And from the time I was like 13 or something like that, I just wanted to to ride bikes and I'd go with him on the weekends yep. and, you know, I'd feel honoured if I could push his bike to the start line and start it for him. And wow. did that for a couple of years and nagged Dad for a bike for a few years as well. And uh, I remember him coming out to watch the dirt track a couple of times and there was a few ambulances and stuff like that. And he's like, ah, nah, this, this biking thing doesn't look like a good idea. So... Just on, t- on that, like your dad, Alan, yep. done heaps for everyone in motorcycles, more than probably most have. Was he, were you guys into bikes? No. Nah. At all? No. Nah. I think he must have had a bad experience when he was younger because he he had regarded bikes as something that were dangerous. When wow. And when I was trying to get one growing yep. up, it was like, nah, nah, not interested. He was a car guy. So he was go-karts and sprint yep. cars and stuff like that. So he was not into, into bikes at all, but it's funny now because you look at him and motorcycles is his life. That's he him. loves yeah. it. Yeah. I honestly thought that would have been one of his things for just... So when you guys went to Hatches, I'm guessing. Yep, Hatches. He, he was against it. Yeah, he just wasn't wasn't that interested. Okay. Yep. Okay, so is there... And then did you get a dirt bike to start with? No. No, I bought one of those little pocket bikes. Yeah. Yeah, like that was my first bike and it was mainly because it was cheap and because Dad didn't really know what it was at the time so saved a bit of money up I think I was about 15 or 16 and I asked dad can I get a pocket bike and he's thinking it's like this little toy and he's like yeah yeah, no worries and then (laughs) we go to drive and get it and he's like oh what's this thing I'm like yeah this is a pocket bike he's like oh we're here now let's get it and from there it uh 
yeah, it just kind of grew. He he started helping me with it because I didn't have any idea what I was doing. And then we figured out there was racing at Parklands and yeah. I was just going to ride the thing around the street. I didn't care. I just wanted to ride. So, yeah, yeah that was uh, how it evolved from there, I guess. And then my little brother got into it. And I think that's what kind of grew the love for it for dad yeah. was that it became a family sport and you know we could do it as a family and the people we met became like family so absolutely yeah it was pretty cool that that's that's incredible i honestly thought that it was some long-seated family thing through years because obviously you and your brother raced and both successful races at it too like that's yeah from from starting off at mini moto stuff to that that's pretty damn awesome yeah we just loved it yeah. so once we were in we were boots and all and how yeah. was parklands at the time it was cool, actually. It was um, super fun. Like, I think yeah. it was done on a Saturday night. So you'd go down at four o'clock in the afternoon and set up and race. And there was there was a lot of them at that time. Like, when they were brand new, everyone was getting into it. And yeah. there was, a, you know, a few high-level races at the time, too, like the Lee Smiths, who raced 125 yeah. GP a lot. And, and, like, even I remember they ran a female class and their mum was having a go. Mary really? was on there having a go. And That's Blake, wasn't it? Blake yeah, Lee Smith. Blake yeah. and Jacko, yep. Yep. Wow, so, so their mum had a go as well. Their mum was on having a go. And, yeah, it was just like it was, you know, good competitive fun. Yeah. And it was easy and it was accessible to a lot of people because it was quite cheap as well. Because it refreshed my memory, but I think you and Mike around come through doing that at the same sort of era too, hey? Similar, yeah. I, same, yeah. Like Mike was probably a couple of steps behind me because he's, he's a bit younger. Okay, um, yep. So, yeah, he's probably six years younger, I would say, than me. Yep. So he was kind of more on the junior side but we were both racing pocket bikes at the same time i was a senior and he was a junior yep. but yeah we were both there at that same sort of time wow when did you progress up to like it was 125s wasn't it yeah dad bought me a 125 gp bike would have been i was 16 because okay. we got um invited out to a private tractor out at uh, carnell raceway at stanthorpe yep. and there was a couple of kids brad gross uh there was another one daniel wheeler you know, who were racing at the time and they had a couple of j extra junior bikes yep. and so Morawaki 80. So I was invited out and was allowed to have a go on that and I just fell in love with it, obviously, because I'd been riding this tiny little bike and to me, that Morawaki was like, oh, this is a real bike. I'm on a super bike. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just remember being so crossed up on this thing and trying to get my knee down. Wow. I crashed it. I got back up, kept going. I rode it until it ran out of fuel and had to push it back to the pits. Like, I just wanted to be on this thing all day. But, um, yeah, we did that and then decided that we'd look at racing, but I was too old for the junior class because I was 16. So ah. Dad bought the 125 GP bike and kind of went off from there. When when we did Supermoto stuff together, right, yeah. and I'm talking uh, mid-2000s now. Yeah, it would have been. What, what, what got you into that side of it? Uh, I was working at Husky at the time, like at... Um, oh, down at um, Feeney's one. Feeney's, yeah. I was working oh. at Feeney's. So I was doing an apprenticeship there and they ran the, the Husky team, the Husky yep. chicks. So they were doing the supermoto and I was like, oh, well, that looks looks cool. And I, they gave me the opportunity to have a ride as well, which yep. was really nice and had some friends with a bike and, yeah, just... It was just more riding. I just wanted yep. to ride bikes and, yeah. Because you had the kitted out bike too hey yeah, yeah the, i did the good bike yeah, yeah 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 i was very lucky working there they were really good to me yeah i remember like um obviously tuesday nights and that 2000 and probably talking five or six it's a fair while ago now i'm thinking um it used to be pretty fun out there to do that eh? yeah they were awesome those nights yeah. and a lot of kids came up through that too actually like it was Absolutely. just yeah accessible for everyone you could go out i think it was 50 bucks and 
you ride around for the evening, go home and carry on with your normal life during the day. So were you racing motard at the time or was that just more ride time? Nah, no. it was just a ride time thing. Yeah. I think I did a couple of rounds and it was just more of an opportunistic thing, I guess. Nice. It was fun though. And, you know, if I wasn't doing everything else and, and that, I probably would have done more of it. So you mentioned apprenticeship before. Yeah. Mechanic. No. What was it? Spare parts interpretation. Oh, really? Down at, down at Husky? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. So I was working in parts and I wish I'd done mechanic. Like that side of things really interests me now and I wish yeah. I'd understood more about the bikes and the engines. But it was good because, you know, dealers would ring up and they'd get me on the end of the line, 18 years old or whatever it was, and yeah. they'd go, oh, we'd need, you know, this part and I'd be looking through all the parts fishers going... I don't even know where that would sit in the engine. I'm like frantically trying to run out to the mechanic. Well, what's this? Where would it be? So I learnt a lot there too and that was really good, like good experience. At that time too, that shop was cranking. Yeah, they were going great. They had Kajiva, MV, Husky and, you know, the Husky race teams were going awesome and they were racing, Trinders were racing the MVs as well, which was really cool at that time. Yeah, so that was really interesting. It was like a race team at the shop. Yeah, Yeah, the mechanics workshop was like right next door to our office and it was just immaculate, like beautiful red, you know, cabinets with just everything was clean and bright and neat and it was, yeah, like a like a showroom for me. Like proper pride, you know, and that's I think that's the part of racing that you really appreciate. You go into a racing workshop and it's the good ones, it's just schmick, you know. Yeah. I, I, I take take a lot of respect in that, eh? Yeah, same. I appreciated that. One, two, fives. Is it something that should still be here? Oh, yes, because they're fun. They're an awesome bike. They're so cool. That's they're, what I think too. Yeah, they're light. You can throw them around. You can learn a lot on them. The yep. two-strokes are obviously getting phased out because of all the emissions and stuff like that yep. now, but they were fun to ride and they were a good bike to learn on. Cost-effective. Cost-effective. We could rebuild one ourselves. That was, you know... That's our, a huge part. Yeah, I remember, you know, in about an hour and a half, we could have one rebuilt and we didn't really know what we were doing, so... It was good in that sense because as a family we could run one and mm. do an okay job at it, whereas now everything gets outsourced a bit more, I believe. Because this is what I was going to ask you as well, like how it it's sort of changed so much of, of you know, um, obviously the Moto3 bikes come through and they're highly specced, highly worked machines. You, there just seems to be something missing for the... the the privateer, you know, like, and that's where 125, you could be a wild card and have a really good crack. Yeah, in saying that, to be a wild card, like Brad Gross did a wild card on one at Phillip Island in, I don't know when it was, but yep. uh, he he finished the highest out of any wild card that had ever done it before he actually scored points, which was pretty cool. But he spent a full year uh, building that bike and testing that bike at Phillip Island just to do that. So wow. it was still... Even though at a lower level you could run it yourself, yep. it was still not a cheap uh, sport. If mm. you if you wanted to be up the front, you still had to spend the dollars and have the people that, that really knew what they were doing. Ex-factory people, basically, like people that have hung around, you know, that sort of, uh, that sort of environment, I guess, yeah? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Did you enjoy, like, obviously racing the 125 the most out of, out of racing times? I would say yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like I have a lot of fond memories about that. And it was cool because I got to race my brother as well and we were pretty competitive and we were always pretty close too. So it was fun. Yeah. And uh, we had very different riding styles. So we'd end up in some pretty good battles and I'd have advantages here, he'd have advantages there. So that was cool. Yeah, the 125 as a bike was fun to ride and the racing for me, like I look back on it and it's probably one of the better times. 
if if you look back at uh, like that era of racing, there's a pretty pretty packed grid. Excuse me, pretty packed grid too, hey? Yeah, there was actually. There was quite a few like, and the one two fives was probably one of the thinner grids out of the the yep. race series. But like, I can remember being on a grid at um, Eastern Creek in Super Stock Six Hundred when they ran the stock class, and I think there was like thirty eight bikes on the grid. Like I was. You know, there's just a lines and lines of bikes, which is, you know, super cool to see. So it's a shame that we don't quite have the grids like that anymore. One of the biggest grids, I'm guessing you would have been at, would have been the six hour. Yeah, that was awesome. That's a big one, hey? That was a big one. Who, who did you team up with for that? Do you remember? Steve and Ralph yep. and uh, Fuge from out at... Craig Alec. Yeah, Craig Alec. Yeah. Yeah, we did it together. What was that like to do? Awesome, because it's a team, team yeah. event. Like the endurance racing is really good because it is a team. Like all of racing is a team event. You cannot do it just as a rider. Sure. There's so many people in the background that make it work. But that was cool because it, you know, there was other people on the bike, and you had to have the bike set up so it was suited everyone, and everyone had to do the best they could. And you know, you'd high five each other when you come in and stuff like that. So that was cool from that that perspective. It was like a um, motorcycle sportsman event. A fair few people went down from home, eh? There was a lot. The endurance events just drew, drew people from everywhere. Yep. Like, they were such good events. And it's good to see that, like, St. George is starting to bring the five-hour back and stuff like that. Like, I think they haven't run at Phillip Island because of COVID, but they have intentions of doing it back there again. Wow. So that will be really cool. Yeah, I was talking to uh, I was talking to someone yesterday. I was like, I did a, I did a one or two hour at Morgan Park once. Yeah. And it was, like, the best fun. Like, it is so good. Like, you team up with someone. There's It's just... You know, the, the uh, like TT start, sort of run across the track, yep. sorry, start. Just cool. Like it's a good, it's a good fun event, you know. And everyone takes it serious, but it's not, it's not a sheep station serious, you know. Yeah, I think because you're ending up like it's a, a race against the clock really in the end. You're not, yeah, it's not a track battle, is it? No, you're not side by side. So at the, the first stint is always like that. Mm. But then once you start rotating through... You kind of know who's where, but you're just out there doing your own thing, kind of, yep. you know, pacing yourself, cutting as many laps as you can, as quick as you can. So it's nice. It does take that kind of stress out of it, yeah. but you're still being competitive. And there's still hopefully someone on track to chase or, you know, to still battle with, you know, that's yep. that many bikes. There's a lot of bikes on track for that. Yeah, there's usually someone to follow. If you look back at that time, that, that's probably uh, 2010, somewhere around that. Yeah, it would I guess. Been. Yep. Do you look at your riding style? then and go geez i had a fair bit to learn at that point yeah for sure really? and i think back at crashes and things like that too where i go oh i blame the tire or something mm. like that and i just go oh no nah, that was that was probably something you were doing and i look at the way like i used to sit on the 125 and stuff like that and yeah there was there was some less than ideal things in my riding at that point but you can't know everything when you start no definitely not do you do you, do you get much of time to ride now the last year, no. Okay. No, just because we were overseas and, you know, when you're over there and the kids are giving it everything they've got, I try and put everything I've got into them. So if we're at a day and I'm riding, it takes away from what I can give them. Yeah. So when we're over there, I don't really ride. We got out on the trials bikes and stuff a bit, but in terms of road riding, yep. no. But uh, I just had a couple of days down at Phillip Island with Addicted to Track and... Uh, he supplied me a nice R1 to ride and I got to cut some laps, which was pretty good. That's good. Yeah, I'd actually forgotten how much I enjoyed riding. It's really, it just puts a smile on your face. So I'm not going to ask you, I was going to ask you that, do you, do you still enjoy the riding part? Because what, what you're doing now would be so rewarding. 
yeah. like, uh, like every part that you're doing with that now would be so rewarding. I, you probably get taken away by the writing a bit. You're like, oh, I really enjoy the benefit this gives me. Yeah. The coaching. The coaching is awesome because mm. you're helping someone with something that they enjoy yep. and you're seeing them progress and improve and, you know, the satisfaction that they get from that gives you satisfaction. But, um, yeah, I still enjoy writing and I probably wouldn't be doing this if I didn't still enjoy writing yep. um, because that was kind of the underlying reason why I'm in the sport. But uh, there was a point where for sure it, it just became like a job and it was when I was working for the Superbike School and I was trying to, you know, run everything and manage everything and then write as well and the writing just ended up becoming a nuisance because it was taking away from everything else that I had to do, like the the priorities that I had elsewhere. So it did become a bit like a job and in the end I was like I'd rather just opt to not ride so I can focus on everything else but I don't think it was because my passion for riding you know, lessened, it was more the situation was I just had too many other responsibilities. It's like a burnout, a motorcycle burnout. You're just doing so much around. There's so much to organise and everything. Let's t- Can we talk about Superbike School stuff? Yeah, yeah, sure. So you're, what, what's what's a year for the Superbike School? Because I remember when you first sort of got into it, you, you would have been a massive frequent flyer. You were travelling a lot. We travelled a lot, yeah. So it, what's a year do? What, what are you doing a year for a Superbike School? Uh, back then. Well, a typical year back then was um, oh, probably, I would say, about 40 events in Australia. So 40 Jeez. event days between uh, Morgan Park, Phillip Island, Sydney Motorsport Park. And then there'd be maybe four different events in New Zealand. So you'd be going to a couple of different tracks over there. And then the Australasian branch here, they also service like the Philippines, Taiwan, China, uh, Thailand, like... They do the whole of the Pacific, Asia Pacific region. So yep. there was, yeah, quite a bit of travel. And ride days, like you're talking. Yeah. Like you're riding, you know, fast bikes a lot. Like yeah. 60, 60 days a year, 70 days a year, you reckon? Like 40 here and plus the others, I reckon maybe. Would have been about 80 days a year with the Superbike School, I would guess. Yeah. But then, yeah, at that same time, I was working for Phillip Island Ride Days and. So you'd be riding every day that they had on down there as well. And I think me and one of the other guys from the Superbike School who were both working the ride days looked at it and probably went, there's there's no one else that would be doing as many laps around Phillip Island as what we are in sure. one year at that time, you know. And you took, took a bit of the beauty of Phillip Island away too because you just you didn't appreciate it as much. Do, do you now, like when you went on the R1, the other, you do? Yeah. You just, it's such an incredible circuit. The speed, especially not having ridden, I hadn't ridden since March this year, last year, sorry, March last year. Wow. And um, so like not having ridden that long and going to one of the fastest tracks in the world was just like, wow, this, this is cool. As you're coming around turn two and the ocean's out there and the beautiful sun and yeah, it was pretty amazing. Oh, I'm so pumped. Right there in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, weeks. you're gonna uh, love it. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Like it's, um, you know, you say the fun sort of gets out of it. For a lot of people, that's a bucket list. Yeah, you know, like especially from up here, like it's a bit of a journey. And you know, um, as as just a rider. Yep. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those things where you're like, oh, I can't wait to get there. You know? Yeah, it's pretty good. That was one cool thing, like with the superbike school, because you get a lot of people fly in to mm. do it because they could rent the bikes and things like that, and you'd see them go out for the first session and they'd be there with a couple of their mates and they'd come in and just the smiles they would have and you just, you look at them and you go, ah, that's 
that's what this circuit is, you know. It's just an experience that you don't get anywhere else. What's one of the most interesting hire bike stories you've got? Anything? Oh. I bet you there's been a few over the time. Interesting? There was a... <laughs> A lovely guy from uh, from Malaysia that came over a couple of times. Okay. And uh, he came over with good intentions, you know, to do the school and he'd do ride days and he'd always couple them together. So he'd be there for four or five days on track and this guy crashed a lot. Uh, like I remember him crashing multiple bikes in one day and then multiple bikes day after day. And it got to the point where he uh, there was no more high bikes to give this guy. Like he'd oh, crashed that many... And, you know, for him, the money wasn't an issue. He was, he didn't mind. He hadn't hurt himself. He just wanted to keep riding. And it got to the point where uh, Steve was kind of like, we just don't have any more bikes that we can afford to get crashed. We've got more days to run and more people to, you know, put on bikes. And and this guy was, you know, obviously very disappointed because he'd come there to ride and he, he loved it and he just wanted to, you know, get coaching and do better and and stuff like that. And then I remember seeing him in Malaysia at a track day at Sepang maybe two years later, and he came up to me and he's like, oh, hi, do you remember me? And I was like, I do remember you, <laughs> yes. And he just laughed and he goes, I've got my own bike here, I'm riding, I'm having a great time. I was like, okay, that's awesome. Like, And he was such a nice dude and we actually spent the day kind of hanging out and talking, but that was probably like in terms of higher bike stories. Yeah. Yeah, that was probably one of the most interesting. That's heavy, eh? Yeah. Like, it, it's because it happens. It, it does happen. All the time, you know, and uh, yeah, it's a good excess. Yeah. It's a damn good excess. So, yeah, the poor guy, though, you got to feel coming all that way. Um, had he improved when he got back to Sabang? He had, actually, yeah. yeah. And he improved the days there while he was getting coaching and stuff as well, but he just wanted to go fast mm. but didn't want to pull it back enough to correct what needed to be corrected first. So it was like, you know, he'd, he'd apply a little bit and then just add too much speed to it. And you're like, it's still not not good enough to be going at the pace you're going. And then he, you know, figure that out the hard way. So hmm. he's just a little bit excited, I think. Not the crashing part, but do you see that a lot with coaching? With with people, like, they'll they'll apply a bit of it and then just try and try and just blitz it, you know? What, do you see that much? Uh, yes and no. Yeah. The ones who want coaching, no. Like, okay. if they've actually come to you yep. to get coaching, then they've acknowledged, okay, there's something that I need to fix. Mm -hmm. It's generally the ones who want, like, the quick fix or or something like that and they go, like, they kind of know there's something to fix but they're not really invested in the coaching itself that will do something like that. They're like, oh, yeah, 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 and then they'll go and do part of it and not really, you know, apply it or take the time to do it because no one it's very rare that you get a rider and you're like okay we got to make this change and they just go out and it's like instantly done there's right. there's a process that you have to work through because you change one thing and it changes you know 20 other things yeah and the riders who want to will go through that process of going okay well i need to change this and xyz needs to adapt to that and then there's others who will go and try and do that and don't spend the time trying to fix everything else that that goes with that and they're the kind of ones who don't really get the benefit out of it. You don't always see it result in a crash or anything like that, but they just don't get the full benefit of, yeah. of what you're giving them. So the investment of everyone's time and energy, they don't just get that full full reward out of it, yeah? Yeah, but you look at the cost of coaching, and this is pretty standard across the board for most coaching now, yeah. they're paying a fair amount to be there. So if they're investing that amount and that time, the day off work, tyres, everything else... Yeah. 
They're there to learn. So it's pretty rare that you come across someone like that who's actually there for coaching. It's not like going to school. No. You don't want to be, <laughs> no. Not that you don't want to be there, but come on, some, some of us don't. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Most motorcycle riders that I've sort of met probably don't really want to be at school too much. No. Normal school. This is not superbike school, but... Um, no. Yeah. Some of the kids that I've worked with, it's definitely just get them through school and, yeah. you know, get them riding fast because... Yeah, they, we need, need, to get that they box need to ticked. they need to be out of <laughs> yeah yeah we'll we'll worry about plan B later when when you when you did that um you know the the trial process for the school was there a light bulb moment that you went hey I really want to do this coaching like this is something like you've made a career in this like this is something that you're obviously passionate about but was there a light bulb moment that go okay this is me now I want to be a coach mm, not so much at the moment when I tried out right. it was more for me when I tried out it was more that there was something I could learn and, you know, I saw it as uh, almost in a selfish way of like, okay, I'm, I'm a racer and I want to go faster and there's things that these people can teach me that I can use to go faster. Yeah. The helping people, I've always loved helping people in anything, you know, um, but for sure the, f- the first part of it was that I just love learning and if I can learn something and if yeah. there's people I can learn from then... Sure, I'll, I'll latch on and, and take what I can because it just makes me a better person, it makes me a better coach, a better writer, everything else. So the, the first part of it was definitely that that got me sucked in. But then once I started learning and the more I could learn, the better coach I could become. And mm. once I realised that, I was like, this coaching thing's cool because I can actually help these people. I'm not just riding in front of them, go and follow me and hope that they can replicate what I'm doing. I was like, I can genuinely help these people and for me to see that process play out and yeah. like the effect in their writing is is rewarding and that's probably what I love most about it now. So that's that's probably the addictive part. You know, you that, get a real addiction from that. That's the bit that keeps me coming back. Yeah. Like I just keep going, what can I learn next and what can I learn next? And then that just translates through to being able to coach people better and better. I, I had a uh, good conversation with a coach in the dirt world um, there's a lot of lot of people going into dirt coaching mm. that can't coach. They're fast motorcycle races. Yeah. Do you see that happening a bit? In okay. For sure. Yeah. yeah. It's just because you can ride fast doesn't mean you're going to be a, a great coach. Like. Yeah. And I use the example of Tiger Woods. He's always had a golf coach. You know, if he mm. if his golf coach is that great, then why wouldn't he be beating Tiger Woods in a competition? And it's not because. Um, this guy's, you know, an exceptionally phenomenal golf player. It's because he understands the, the mechanics behind it and can actually deliver that in a way that's usable to, yep. to Tiger Woods. And, and motorcycle coaching is no different. If you can ride fast, uh, it's obviously a, a benefit because you have the reality on what's going on on the bike and the feeling and the sensations and the understanding. But you need to be able to understand it break it down and then deliver it to the person that you're coaching in a way that they can use that and that's kind of where it breaks down a little bit sometimes that's where you get the specialist that's someone that can actually be part b and do the coaching and it really yeah and that's what um the superbike school was always really good for was that they would look for good coaches not fast riders like all the riders are fast you could put them all you know on an asbk grid and they'd probably be having a go at uh, Michael Edwards or someone like that, you know, they're not going to be up the front, but they're not going to be, you know, ridiculously out of place. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but one thing that they all did have in common was that they had good communication skills, good understanding, the ability to, you know, break things down and process things. It's an interesting path. Like it's a, 
it's a very specialized path because a lot of people are bad communicators. Yeah. You know, it's to be a good communicator is very difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. And it wasn't something I was always good at either. Really? I, it's nah, nah. I was terrible as a kid, and yep. as you know, younger, I couldn't couldn't public speak. I couldn't, you know, really articulate what I wanted, what I felt, that kind of thing. So it's definitely something I've worked on over the years as well. And I feel like the better I can get at that, the better I can do do my job. But it's it's a requirement, so it's something that you can can work on and I've had to work on. Yeah, and it's one of the things you can you can succeed at. You know, if you put the time to it, it's it, it's possible, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. It's a skill and skill, you can yep. build it. You know, anyone can build it. You've just got to put the time and effort into it. I speak to Mike a lot, Mike Jones. Southeast Asia, he went to the superbike schools over there as well with you. Yeah. He, he really enjoyed that um, over there. Why is it so special over there to coach? So he'd be referring to Taiwan. Yes, and he came to China with us as well, with, okay. with the Taiwanese promoter. Right. And um, it's we went to Taiwan for, I think, eight years in a row, and the people are just awesome. Really? Yeah. They were like family from the moment we met them. They were so welcoming and accommodating and, and everything. And we would spend, I think, 10 days a year with them. Every December yep. we would go over and run some superbike schools over there. And, yeah, they just became like family, and we just loved... You know, we look forward to going back every December and, and yep. seeing these people and, and hanging out. And one of the American coaches, Jerry, who used to come with us, he's actually uh, learnt Mandarin. Wow. And uh, he's living over there now. He's got a Taiwanese girlfriend. He's been living there for a couple of years and he runs like uh, cycling and, and mountain bike tours over there in Taiwan. And Wow. Yeah, like it's just really nice people and nice culture. Yeah. Yeah, Mike. Like it's, he, he's like some of the best times you have, and even like the fans still like he's got fan, a fan base there. You Massive, know? yeah, a huge fan base there, and yep. um, yeah, he says it's very rewarding to go coach in a place like that. You know, yeah, he also likes the mm. uh, bubble milk tea, and they do really good bubble milk tea Are you over serious? there. Yeah, he loves it, <laughs> loves it. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So, I tease him. No, nah. nah, that's cool. Um, yeah, as I said, he 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 loves that place. Yeah, it's good. Laguna Seca, the first time you got the ride there. What do you think? cool but not as good as i thought it was going to be wow okay more hype than than reality i guess in yeah. from my experience the the corkscrew is cool like the first time you come into that you kind of come over going where is this going but mm. once you've done that a couple of times that's not the coolest part of the track that next turn rainy is the that way that down to the left. yeah the yeah. drop down to the left that is awesome and the straight like just being pinned over this blind rise, just hoping that you've got the angle just right to, you know, not run off the track on the other side. That's that's pretty cool. But there's uh, America has a lot of cool tracks. Yeah. So for me, Laguna was n probably not one of my favourite. A very hyped circuit, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I think with the battles and stuff like that, that you've, you've seen in the past through the corkscrew, it, yeah. it hypes it up a lot more. And I think from a racing perspective, it, it brings very good racing. But from a rider point of view there's cooler tracks for sure what were some of the other ones you got to ride over there oh we've done a heap um like miller motorsport park barber motorsport park um, did you like barber barber's my favorite really yep that's a good good place eh? absolute favorite alabama isn't it yeah, yeah alabama yeah built on an old dairy farm i think it is but yeah the, the gentleman uh, was an ice cream mogul hey eh? like yep. he made billions of dollars off ice cream or something hey eh? yep Yep. Wow. He actually built it. He's got a museum at the track with yep. hundreds and hundreds of cool bikes, like, from everywhere. 
and uh, he built it so that he could test the bikes on the track. Is that what it was for? I believe so, yeah, because it actually, the base of the museum where the workshop is, there's a road that runs straight out onto the racetrack. Yeah. So I believe it was originally designed for that and to give jobs to the local locals and and stuff like that and he still employs everyone's local and he keeps all the money in and like it's just a, an amazing facility and a really nice story behind it as well absolutely we i went there in uh, i think it was 2014 or 16 and um we, i was in the lift with him oh really i didn't realize till i was reading the the article and um yeah like this guy it's him. Oh, this is Barber Motorsport Park, man. And we, we've been in the lift because obviously the museum is like five or six stories or something, something crazy. It's yeah. one of the best. It's probably the best automotive thing I've ever been to. It's I amazing. Think, by far. Yeah. yeah. But, um, so good to ride though. Really fun. Yeah, ride. fun. Yeah. It's got a lot of undulation <clears throat> and it's just a really interesting circuit. It keeps you busy all the time. Yep. So it's really cool. Yeah. When did you stop? And you probably haven't stopped racing, but when did you stop racing to oh. go coaching? I didn't really stop racing to go coaching. Okay. I stopped racing mostly when I broke my leg pretty bad in a, in a motocross accident. Uh, that kind of slowed me down. And Is that in Australia? Yeah, yeah. It was at Reedy Creek, Ooh. just down the road. Yep. Yeah, that was just my mistake. I messed up and came down and broke my femur. Um, but it was kind of around that time that I'd, I'd been accepted into the super white school and I was moving from the Gold Coast down to Melbourne. So, and I had quite a substantial recovery on the leg so it's kind of like that the racing side of it all got pushed aside and and I guess my coaching career started right and it wasn't because I was like oh, okay I'm done with that or whatever it was just the situation at the time because you've still done some races as well you know it's not that's why I was like you're not retired from racing because if the right opportunity came up at the right time no doubt you'd put the leathers on and go race something again yeah I enjoy the racing yep. Like, it definitely gets me a little bit more nervous than it used to now because I don't do it as much. Yeah. Um, But I enjoy the the competition side of it. But for me, a lot of it now is just, like, improving my own riding and trying to beat myself, I guess. Are you a good rider now, as in technique rider? Oh, I would would say I look okay if you watch me from the sidelines. Yeah, I would say fairly clean technique, but... Can I push all those skills to the limit of, you know, an ASBK guy? Definitely not. Yep. And I think, you know, I haven't ridden for a, for a bit, getting a little bit older, I guess a little bit wiser, yeah. a little less fearless. So all of that kind of comes out of it a bit. But I've learned a lot in the last 12 months. And when I found myself down at Phillip Island the other day, I was like, oh, okay, I'm starting to understand, you know, I understand more now about riding. And uh, I feel like I could probably push faster than I had previously wow you know given given the opportunity right bike right tires right technique it's yeah. a good package you know when you got that in it yeah yeah exactly when when did you go to europe um this yeah so this was first year in europe last year was first year in europe how how like that's a huge move yeah how how was it like you've based yourself andorra Endora we're in now, yeah. And is that like that's the hub, isn't it, at the moment? Like that's where a lot of lot of riders are, aren't they? There is a lot of riders up there. I think a lot for uh, like a lot of the high level riders for tax reasons, because the tax in Spain and places like that is massive. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, so a lot of their hard earnings kind of goes goes away with that. Yep. So Endora is really good, but it's also such a beautiful place. Um, like if you are into the outdoors and being active, is no better place. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of like a little bit... I liken it to, like, New Zealand. Yep. 
it's just beautiful there's you know you can walk out the door and go riding go hiking it's safe everyone respects the athletes there there's a lot of high level athletes from all walks of life yeah um so yeah it's really kind of a nice place to be that's cool so so who who were you coaching last year over there I started with Harry Voigt, yep. so we did the first half of the year with that pretty much until he had his uh, big accident with his leg yep. in Porto Mayo, and then after that I was working with Senna Aegis. So. How's that all going? Yeah, pretty good. Seems to be good, eh? Yeah, it's getting there. What, what was what was the some of the transitions, the stuff that you had to really, I guess there was things to iron out or like how, how do you start with someone? Like at that age you've got somewhat of a blank canvas to work with. Yeah. How do you start with someone like... Hi, I'm Steph. Um, yeah, yeah. How does it start as a riding coach? The kids are easy. Like, right. believe it or not, they're easier than adults are because yep. the kids will just throw kind of blind faith at you. And if you tell them something, they go out, do it, it works, you've got them. Like, they're sold, you know. They mm. just want, they're like, give me the next thing, give me the next thing. So adults are a little bit more sceptical. We, we hold on to our kind of ideas and beliefs a little bit stronger. Right. Um, so kids are easy in that regard. And I was pretty lucky, like, I've worked, worked with Harry Voigt for a couple of years now since he started in Asia Talent Cup basically and then uh, Senna was the same I've been working with him since I think he was 12 years old he's 16 now so yeah like I said I started when they were young and uh, they just wanted to go fast and if you could give them something to help with that then then they were on board so 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 what's what's your life over there like tell me like yeah, tell me what you do. Like you're obviously riding coach, but you must spend a lot of time behind the scenes as well with with them as well. Yeah. Yeah, every day. Every like day. You live live with them, yep. and uh, every day, like with Senna, he's just like an energizer bunny. That kid never stops. So Good. we get up in the morning, and it's like, what are we doing today? And you know, we're going cycling, or we're going hiking, or you know, doing something. There's there's always something. So most of the days, I guess. Um, a pretty ideal in terms of a lifestyle we wake up we have a nice breakfast and we go cycling for a few hours we'll have some lunch yeah probably do a little bit of schoolwork in the afternoon and and that's the day that's day done it's the day so he's over there just with you no his dad's there as well oh, his dad came as well yeah yeah okay. yeah that's um yeah and what about coaching like do you do you do like mini moto stuff or yeah uh, we're well? we're always working on something there's yeah. always, no matter where you go, there's something to work on, whether it's like, uh, you know, one lap pace, whether it's, you know, seeing if they can do a full stint of 20 minutes at the same lap time, consistency, yep. whether you're working on rider technique, depends on the bike, the track. You know, we might have, we walk away from a race weekend and we go, okay, we need to improve this, this and this. And then based on what training we've got coming up, we'll go, okay, we'll work on this chunk of it here. And then if we don't get that done, we'll can you know finish it here or you know we might take this element and work at it at this track because this has specific you know requirements that can fit what we need for that and yeah so it's just the race meetings really are like the the performance and the show and we go okay how do we do yep what do we need to work on and then we use those days to to pick through the pieces yeah wow how much of your job is watching someone else like watching other riders all of it (laughs) really is Yeah, yeah like when they get to this point in their riding, like you look at, at uh, Senna or Harry Void or Harry Curry or any of the kids that are overseas, they're at that, that top level already. Like they're so fast to be within a second or a second and a half of, of the guys at the front of those fields. Like any, any top 10 in those fields over in CEV usually can go straight to the world championship and, and slot right in. Yep. So they're, they're at that kind of peak already. So to physically watch 
what's going on. Like to watch the rider in isolation, it's very difficult to pick up what's going on. Like, you know, someone will sit there and watch and go, oh, they're riding so good, but you need a reference. And so you're always watching like, okay, what's this person doing? This person's faster. What are they doing? Why are they doing it? And how could that relate to Senna? You know, do his skill sets fit that, that type of thing? So it's just constantly like kind of watching and evaluating and seeing how it all works. Do you have, you mentioned football coaches and stuff before, big big part of their week's video sessions, like their video, 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 because a lot of theirs is, um, you know, blocking for uh, tactics and stuff like that. Do you have like a, say Acosta, Pedro Acosta, do you have a video through the week? Sometimes you watch the MotoGP and analyse it yourself? For sure, yeah. Because yeah. like he's at the moment world club, like incredible. Um, and I'll ask you more about him, but... That must be a big part of what you do too, yeah? Yeah, video and data. Like we're lucky now that we live in this day and age where bikes have data. So and if you buy into a good team, they've usually got data from a pretty significant rider. So you've got the data to compare as well as as video. But, I mean, it may be a little bit different because you're watching Pedro and things like that, but you've got to take into account the actual individual rider and each rider is physiologically different Mm -hmm. and their skill is different and their bike is different. So what Pedro Acosta can do on that bike may not necessarily be the right thing for this person to do on that bike. So you need to – we watch and and evaluate what's going on but then you've also got to then take that and go, okay, why – why are they doing that? What is the end goal that they're trying to achieve and why is that better than what this person's doing now? Yep. That's interesting. Like, you, you know how addicted to the sport I am? Yeah. Like, that side of it's so interesting to, to hear about what you've got, the access to things. Data. So if, if say, Senna rides for a team, he has access to someone else's data. Like, if you're in a good team, for, for instance, it's got that. Yep. They'll they'll supply that, obviously, to learn off and things, yeah? Yeah, they don't supply it outside of the event, so you can't just take it home and, you know, oh, so peruse it's just through it. Yeah, 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 of course. It's, you know, they've it's they've spent property. a lot of money and, yep. and worked hard to get that data. Yep. So, like, with Senna in the 658 team, they had uh, data from, like, Lorenzo Fallon and Tatsuki Suzuki in the World Championship. So yep. data like that sometimes is relevant. Sometimes, you know, we look at the lap time from them to them and it's too far apart so it's like well you know there's no point looking at that here we need something in the middle so maybe it's from like Josito Garcia who is their main rider in CEV yep. but they've always got someone that has got data that you can kind of learn learn from and look at and reference against how, how did you learn that stuff <laughs> just time of, yeah just time and uh, out of necessity really like yep. it's because that's massive eh it is massive and you can learn so much from it if you understand how to read it. And when I first started looking at it, well, when I first went over to Europe, right, I couldn't go the year before because of COVID. Yep. I couldn't get permission to leave Australia. So Not possible. No, it wasn't possible. So I didn't end up in Europe with the kids in their first year with the 658 team. Yep. So going over to Europe this year, one of the first things I noticed was that they use the data a lot. Like mm-hmm. the teams will will show the kids the data and reference other data, and and the biggest thing was the kids didn't know how to read it. Okay. So they're looking at this data and they're being told these certain things that they need to do. Um, sometimes in good English, sometimes in broken English, and they're being told like, okay, you need to brake later, or you need you're too fast in the middle of the turn. 
right. or your line is this. But the bit that the kids don't have is they don't have that kind of understanding to break it down and go, okay, well, if that's what's happening, mm. how do I then achieve that, right? Where you can look at the data and go, okay, well, they're too fast in the middle of the corner. So then you look at the, the brake trace and you go, okay, well, you know, that person's using a lot more rear brake than what this kid is now. So we need to build that into their riding, but the kids don't have that. They just go, okay, I'm too fast in the middle of the corner. I need to go slower. But then they go, well, if I go slower, how am I going to be faster? So then they kind of get in this confusion and they try and apply these things, but don't really know what they're trying to apply. And like I found when I got over there, we actually had to undo some things because they just misinterpreted what these people were trying to say. And it wasn't because of what the team was saying. It was because the kids over here aren't exposed to any of that. Like data's only just come in to ASBK as being, being allowed. So they just haven't had any exposure to how to actually use this information and process it. So I just learnt because I went, okay, well, here's a shortfall that we've got with these kids. Yep. How do we fix that? I need to understand it myself so then I can help them to understand it. That's, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, and, and like, you know, both you and I just spent two days at the track together and looking at some of the telemetry from what the bikes in testing can have and that, wow. It's deep, eh? There's so much knowledge out there. Yeah, I've probably spent like the last six months solid just learning as much as I can and I reckon I've learnt 5%. Like there is so much to learn and understand. Do you think that's the future of the sport? Like not the future of the sport but a big part of the education of the sport is going to be through data, yeah? Yes, I think. Can there be too much? Yep, for sure. And I think that's why now we're seeing coaches come into like MotoGP. Yep. So they've had data for years Mm. but there's the human element that that the data doesn't consider so um like you look at the in the teams like you've got ducati with peco and and jack yep. right they've got very different riding styles so you've got two very different data sets there both quite fast peco's obviously just you know kind of edging at the the forefront of that yep. team at the moment so you know if you look at it and you go well how come jack hasn't adopted some of maybe what Peko is doing to help with the tyres and things like that. And that's because there's that human element. You can sit there and look at the data, but you've got to know how to to take that and actually build it into what you've currently got to then make it work. So that's where the coach is like an important link between reading data and being able to use it as a rider. So having Casey come back into that team there, you'd have to think that would be part of that. You know, that would have been a huge part towards the end of last year. Yeah, I believe so. And you listen to Casey um, talk in one of his interviews, I think he said when he went to Ducati, he uh, made it work because, you know, he didn't just try and make the bike work for him. He also made himself work for the bike. So yeah. there's, a, there's a compromise. Like, you know, the bike wants to be certain, ridden a certain way, there's certain characteristics that the bike has yep. over others. And, um, you know, you can adapt the bike so much to suit you but there's sometimes you've got to come to the party on that as well and I think that's where Casey has that link of like okay well you know we can adjust the bike this much but you're going to have to do this as well to get the the ultimate result so I think Casey's going to be a massive asset to to that team and really kind of highlight the importance of having someone in there who understands it can break it down and and uh deliver it to the riders so they can use it do you see like say uh We'll say a Maverick Vinales, right? When everything's like a crystal clear day 
it's the the fastest person in the field. Then there's someone like a Mark Marquez that can ride a bike that looks terrible and then can do everything. With your coaching, is that something that you give to people that some there's some days that you need to have a bike that's going to be terrible that you still need to ride around? 100%. Yeah? Yeah. And that, so that's a huge part to it, eh? Yeah, you're never going to have a bike that's perfect. Like yep. um, I guess a good example is when Senna was at the bend this year. Yep. The Honda was brand new. I think we'd tested it once or twice and we got a, you know, a base set up on it. And I got nabbed at the airport and thrown straight into hotel quarantine. So I didn't even make it to the track. And I'm the one that he was relying on to do the data and the suspension. Wow. So yeah. he's, you know, FaceTiming me and Skyping me and sending me the data and I'm trying to read it and, you know. And uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't get it to work. There was too much missing from me not being there, not being able to see it, not being able to listen to all the little fine conversations that he has with me, his dad, that type of thing. So we just didn't quite put all the pieces together and he was still fast. But like on the data, there's going into the uh, turn six, like the hairpin, mm -hmm. he had massive chatter. Like just the front end was just out of control in that turn and another one. Yeah. And um, he, he didn't have a choice. He had to ride around it because at that moment in time, in that session, I think it was a qualifying, we couldn't fix it. And yeah. it, it was what it was. And you know, he understands enough about the riding and what he needs to do to go, okay, well, this is a problem. I need to work around for it. Ideally, yeah, that problem wouldn't be there, but it's not always going to be ideal and it's, it's very, very rarely ideal. Yep. Have you ever ridden a perfect bike? No. Not, not that I, no? I can remember. No. Wow. Not one where I just get on and go, this does exactly what I want it to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's always been something that you're like, oh, it's not... It's not quite as better. good as what I want or, yeah, yeah it's always something. With, with, with you know, and I'm, I'm going to say it wrong, but they're kids. Like to me, they're kids like 16, 17 years old sort of thing. Um, how much of it do you have to help with mentally? Like you're with them all the time. Like yeah. they're away from home. What do they like when they're away? What do you like when you're away? Like, oh, it's tough for everyone yeah, it must when be you're weird. away from home. Yeah. Like, I mean, it helps when you can get a, a kind of base set up there and you start to develop some friends and things like that, for yep. sure. Like, you know, Senna in the end, he, he had a really good group of people to, to go riding with and train with and, yep. and stuff like that. But it's still hard, you know. You're in a, a foreign country. The kids work hard all the time. You yep. know, their only reason for being there is to be the best rider that they can be. So they go to a weekend and they have a, you know, a bad weekend and they come away from it like, oh, you know, questioning, can I do this? You know, everyone's here for me. You know, this is, you know, what I'm here for and I'm not yeah. even doing a good job. So it's tough for them for sure. Like they, they have, you know, an emotional roller coaster up and down all through the year. But I don't think it's unique to kids. I think it's unique to, to the sport, you know. Mm people don't realise how much goes into it and how many little pieces need to be in line for it to go perfectly. And yeah. there's always something that's, you know, out that we don't see. So for it to go up and down mentally and emotionally, it's difficult. So, yeah, there's a lot you've got to kind of keep grounding them with in yeah. that, I guess, and just make sure that you bring them back to, to where they are now and just wherever we are, wherever that is, good, bad, we just keep working forward from there. You're a coach in, like, many, many facets, so... It's not just riding, is it? You know, no. It's a lot of things. No, so much of the sport's mental. Yeah. You know, and if you've got a mentally strong rider who's in a good good headspace, then you can achieve a lot more than someone who's not. What's been some of the biggest things that, like, how, how long you've been coaching now? It's, it'd be 
10, 12 years? 12 years, 12 years? I guess, yeah. What's been some of the biggest like key moments, like things that you look at and you go, if I could just teach everyone this, they'd be a safer rider or a better rider. Is there certain things? Um, in terms of skill? Yeah. Uh, vision? Vision's a big part yeah. um, for sure, but vision doesn't bring control. You know, vision vision helps with control, but if you don't understand what you're physically doing on the motorcycle to achieve a certain result, the vision doesn't help, you know. So for me, it's probably steering, like steering and use of the throttle would be the two big ones. Yeah. That, you know, if you can steer the bike and put it in the direction you want when you want it there, then, you know, that's half the game. You've got got a lot of control over the bike. And then um, one of the most, I guess, or biggest misapplications is the use of the throttle. People generally using it too much or rolling on too early and getting themselves into trouble yeah. in terms of line. So, yeah, steering and gas would be the two two main things. If you can master any two things, do that first. Wow. Yeah, I, 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 as I said, I haven't done a school. I'm going to do a school or some form of coaching. Um, it's interesting to find out what the, you know, a, a few key key things are, you know. Yeah. We... We've done the test two days. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about that. Sure. You obviously observed a lot of other riders there. At the uh, Queensland test? Just Queensland gone. test? Yeah, yeah. Who looked good? Mike. Mike okay. looked nice. Yep. Brian, actually, Brian Starring, he was, he's starting to gel with that Ducati now and yep. and I guess riding it how the Ducati needs to be ridden. Yep. So, yeah, he looks like he's starting to come on strong as well. It's it uh, day one, Mike. Look really, really good straight away. Um, obviously done a lot of that with QR as well. Um, interesting to see the bikes progress over the two days. As a spec, as as a worker there, you're a worker there as well. Um, to see how they, you know, a few of them, like a couple of BMs coming into turn three, just chopping and like by the end of day two, it was like watching a different machine come into the few of the braking zones and stuff. That's cool to see, isn't it? It is, yeah. I, I, I like seeing that progression and watching from the sidelines you can kind of watch and go okay well they're they're having a good day and they're not having a good day you know and everyone has has good and bad days and you never really know the full story like they might be testing different tires different suspension working through different things yeah electronics is a massive part so you never really know where everyone's at so try not to judge too much just based on what you're seeing in that moment but for sure it's nice when you can see a a team turn up and and they're clearly you know not not on the pace or having problems and then by the end you you know the bike's working nice the rider's working well and you know they're doing some fast times so it's pretty cool to watch that progression definitely it's yeah i i i said it to a few people yesterday and i I think this is something for asbk like it's you learn so much more at those days than a race day and this is where like um you know your motocross motocross coverage you, you like the ama hey yeah yeah the ama coverage is unreal for all that behind the scenes sort of stuff. I do cover it well, actually. I've yeah. gotten into that more recently. Senna's kind of gotten me oh, really? into that a lot. Yeah, I never used to follow it much, but... But they cover all that stuff really well. Yeah. It, the race day is like a minor part of... It, it's like uh, like football in a way nowadays. Like you see so much of Monday to Friday that yep. the Saturday, Sunday is good, but all that other thing. And, that you know, being around the paddock for the two days there, there's so many stories that are missing out really a, a more more of a story than what being at the races are about um needs to be more told i feel 
Yeah, well, there. if you look at what they did with Formula One with that drive to survive. Oh, yeah. Brilliant, right? Like Absolutely. I like Formula One, but prior to that series, I never really followed it or was that interested. But yep. you start to invest in the personalities and the struggles and the triumphs and things like that. And you just go, they're just people like us, you know, yep. that are just working through everything and doing the best they can. And their budgets are a little bit bigger, admittedly. But of course. Same sort of process, you know. It's cool to see. And um, they're actually doing one on GP. I yeah, don't know when it'll be out. but Amazon one, hey. Yeah, yep. So they've been filming that. So that'll be really cool. But I think for sure, and it's being more acknowledged these days that that's what people are interested in, is the, the human factor behind it. For sure. Like the human experience. Like, you know, there's so much. You know, everyone has a conversation that days like, oh, how's such and such? Like there's so much stuff happening there. You know, did Lachlan do a 7-8? Yeah, I think so. Maybe. You know, Dash said it did. Is so Dash like, said it? You know, um, you know, who got an 8-0, who, who got this? There's so many different stories amongst a day like that that doesn't need to be like a high-produced Netflix series, but people really want to see it. And like with the stuff I was doing with Ducati, I, I feel that's we, – we're putting like a day release out of each thing that we did each day and it's good to have – I find that's the content that I want to watch. So that's why we put it out. So hope uh, I hope that happens as it, as it moves on. Yeah, I think for sure and people like yourself doing that type of thing mm. is good for the sport because it does, it brings more interest into it and it shows the real side of the sport. So, yeah, if we can get, get more people like you doing that, then I think and the sport will... the truth. The truth, yeah, and that's what people want. They just want real. Yeah. You know, there's so much fake out there these days that they just want, want the real and no one cares if you, you know, you made a mistake here or you're having trouble with that. It's nice because they can relate to it. They go, oh, he's just another human being like me. Absolutely. And, like, the, the days of, you know, oh, I'm going to sponsor this, my, my such and such and such and such, the bike went well today. That's so boring. Yeah. You know, I don't want to see that. I want to see, like, we, we did an interview with Ben and Ben's raw. It was honest. Yeah, I think we're in this awkward awkward stage at the moment where people want to see that. Yeah. But then the people delivering that message are still, you know, you still got to look after your sponsors and you still got to remain professional. And yeah. so the, I think everyone's just starting to figure out how do we be real yeah. without being damaging. And I For think, sure. yeah, I think that it's kind of going through that evolution now. And I think we're going to see more and more kind of real, real stuff out there. It's nice. And, yeah. and there's some good people in the sport for this as well. Uh, you're with Aiden Wagner yep. co- coaching. Yep. Um, how, did, how did a few days go out there for that? Oh. Obviously addicted to track uh, with Mark McGregor as well. So how'd that go? Yeah, good and bad. Yep. I mean, you know, ideally you turn up at a track and you go seconds faster than the first session you got there and you leave happy, but it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't always work like that. And Aiden had a crash on that bike down at, at Phillip Island at the ASBK test, which is not all that long ago. It's come back up, rebuilt. We didn't realise the swing arm was bent. Right. And uh, so for the first day he was riding around on a, a bent swing arm. So every time he'd, he'd let go of the brake and put the rear wheel on the ground, the thing would, you know, kind of hop and dance. So we just couldn't do anything with that. So first day was, you know, a bit of a ride-off, change the swing arm, come back the next day. And then, um, yeah, we, we started from there basically. And we were pretty happy with the setup in the end, but we were testing different tyres, like we were doing a... a race length run on the tyre we're going to be running at Phillip Island yep. because he crashed down there and we didn't get the opportunity to do that. So, yeah. you know, we didn't really post as fast a time as what we want. Um, but 
in saying that we're, we're happy with where the bike ended up and we believe that we can go faster next time we go there so good and bad we didn't feel like we achieved quite as much as what we should have but we did get a lot done in the same token it's it's a it's a tough thing and same as what you said before you don't know where people are completely at you know you're doing race runs or you're trying to set that fastest lap of the day who knows but how'd you how'd you pick up on the swing arm Hayden picked it up really yeah yep so it was bent perfectly like sideways like that so yeah it was just you could line everything up and it, it looked kind of straight, but uh, it just wasn't. So, yeah, he actually picked it up when he was – he kept saying, like, when I'm putting letting go of the brake and putting the rear wheel on the ground, it just keeps wanting to hop left and right because essentially it was, you know, out. So yeah. when it come down, it was it was bouncing around. So, yeah, he, he actually picked it up. Like, he's got incredible feel and, and he knows what he's doing and what's going on on that bike pretty much every every second he's riding around that track. So he's he's a big asset to us in that way. That's incredible. Yeah, because yeah, I, was, I was wondering, like, you go through a day with, without noticing it and you spend a lot of time at the rear of a bike. Um, yeah, so the rider picks it up. Yeah, incredible. rider picked it up. What's – you're here till what, March 6th? Yeah, be about, about then, I guess. ASPK, obviously, next round. You're going to that. Yep. Working with Aiden, anyone else at this one? Senna. Yeah, oh, so Senna well. will be there on the on 600. The yep, on the Honda. Same one. Yep. yep. And then, uh, yeah, Aiden on the, the R1. So what's the rest of the year hold out? You obviously go back to Andorra. Yeah, we head back over early March and yep. then uh, start testing Moto2 for Senna. So he'll be on the Moto2 in CEV this year. So testing will start for that. And, yeah, we'll kick the season off in May, I think it is. Wow. And how is, like, Spanish CEV, Moto2, what's, what's it like being around the field like what what, tell me what's it like being over there pretty much like being over here it's kind of it's kind of funny yeah like you go to a track day over there yeah and you know if you put earplugs in and couldn't hear them talking you'd swear you're just at a racetrack in australia like similar sort of styles of people and you know same you know groups of people having a laugh and the bikes all kind of the same like it's funny how many similarities there are in it um, the race meeting's a little bit different, a little bit more professional, I guess. Bigger outfits, bigger budget. Yeah. So we're, we're quite professional in Australia, but we don't have the same money as what they do over there. So a lot of the teams are feeders into the world championship, so yeah. they have bigger budgets and, you know, a bigger show. But it's it's in terms of the vibe and everything, it's it's quite yeah, similar. similar. Yeah. What was, it, what was it like riding a trials bike? Ah, uh, Difficult. <laughs> They're weird, they're weird, eh? They are not like a normal motorcycle no. at all. No, no, I remember like we went out with um, Leon Camarillo had just got back from testing somewhere and Senna and Leon were like, oh, we'll go for a ride, you should come. I was like, yeah, all right, as long as it's going to be an easy one. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we, we took off and I was just like, what is this thing? And it's like, I'm trying to ride it in too high RPM and... Yeah, I'm sure they were looking at me going, can you even ride a bike? Like I was... On the coach. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, I'm just going, oh, this is going to be a long day. Yeah. But no, after half an hour or so, I was starting to get a bit more comfortable on it. And in the end, we're, I was getting not too bad on it. They're just weird, eh? They are weird. They're so different. And and as a, um, you know, dirt track, road race sort of thing, just standing in that weird position the whole time. It's just odd. It just doesn't it's feel right. It's not like any other no. bike. It's You can't liken it to like, oh, it's like this or it's like that. No, it's its its own unique thing. But it does give you an appreciation. Like I always enjoyed watching trials, like yeah. the, the pros do it. And I just watch it now and I go, 
I can't even get over a rock like this big, you know, and they're jumping stuff six, seven feet in the Houses. air. Houses. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. literally. Yeah. How's so. Leon go? Yeah, he's good. Is he? Yeah, he has yeah. a crack too. He's pretty good. Was he doing coaching for a bit? Yeah, so he was um, – yeah, he does like – he does a broad range of stuff. So he does a bit of coaching when he can. He's super busy. Yep. So obviously running the, the HRC team with in World Superbike. Yep. Um, so he does a bit of coaching when he can. But he's a really good sounding board for Senna. Like he's a good mentor for Senna and him and Senna talk all the time. And, you know, he kind of just gives a bit of perspective to Senna and gives a lot of experience to both me and him as well. Like, yep. you know, well – he'll you know give us some some ideas on you know at this track this is kind of what you can expect be careful of this and and that type of thing so yeah leon's great and leon's obviously been a rider he's been through it all so you know if senna's struggling with something mentally or got some problems he can he can always just call on on leon and and use him as a sounding board and get some really good solid advice so leon's been yeah awesome and leon handles all of senna's uh fitness training as well yeah right he's got a really good group of guys in in andorra that handle all the the physio and the fitness and everything like that so yeah he's a good good dude it's so well set up there eh? to Mm. to go and move into that if that's your your path so well set up isn't it to be a professional athlete you've got everything you need at your doorstep yeah what's what's the rest of the year hold going to cev Yep. That'll be travelling because that doesn't just encompass Spain, though, does it? You get to go to some different places as well. Portugal. Portugal, yeah. But I think uh, the Moto2 doesn't go to Italy, so I think it is just Spain. Just Spain for this Spain one. and Portugal for this year. So uh, Portimao, yeah. Valencia. Valencia, Perez. Perez um, Estoril. Oh, yeah, yeah. Another one. Jeez. Uh, Tell you what, Spain, Spain and Portugal, probably some of the best tracks. Catalonia. Catalonia, yeah, yeah, another one. Some of the best tracks in the world, right? Really. They are. Yeah, yeah Portimao. I haven't ridden it, yeah. but it's on the bucket list for sure. It looks amazing. And same with the Valencia. Like, oh, just yeah. the way that circuit flows looks really cool. So, yeah, definitely have to try and get on a bike this year. For sure. Well, thanks so much for obviously taking your time out to come in here. Like, time's of the essence. You're here for, like, what do you had? Nine weeks. Yeah. You've been at a track for... So nine weeks, seven nines. You've been at track for probably forty days of the time here. Yeah, yeah. Quarantine. Um, we didn't have that, luckily. Oh well, in South no, Australia, I got six days there, but yeah, yeah, but not, not the fourteen. Not the fourteen, which was nice. So actually, I'm going to ask you, what happened in South Australia with that? Like, how did you got? How did you get caught up in that? So I think it was because we flew. Because there was, um, you know, myself, Senna, Jono, who's yep. Senna's father. We came back from from Spain. Um, and I think it was uh, nine or ten days after we got back, we went to Adelaide. Right. So at the time when we arrived, Adelaide had seven days quarantine for international arrivals. Yep. So technically we'd already passed that time when we went to Tail and Bend. Yep. Um, so you flew into Sydney? So we flew into Sydney. Yeah. We were there for nine days, went over to Tail and Bend. Yep. Um, Senna, myself and his mother flew, Jono drove. Yep. And then there was another, you know, few people who had been over at Asia Talent Carp and things like that who were in a similar position. Yeah. But they must have, have driven in. I think it was because we were flying that we were on, you know, on the register. Yeah. And so I got to the airport and um, they go, oh, anyone been overseas in the last 14 days into this line? There's like 40 of us in this line. I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then they... Um, asking some questions and then go, oh, just sit over there. We're going to ask you some more questions. I'm like, oh, no, here we go. 
and there's like four or five of us sitting there and then we get taken down to this, you know, isolation quarantine room and they're basically like, okay, we're taking you to hotel quarantine. I was like, oh, hang on a second. I've got this entry check from South Australia that says you can enter, yep. no quarantine. And then it, it turns out they changed the rule like the day before or something. We got there to 14 days yep. quarantine if you come from overseas. So they were like, okay, you've, you've got to go into quarantine. And I was like, but there's other people I know that, haven't been subject to this and then they're going oh well give us the names I'm like no I'm not playing that game like I just don't want to be here you know and they're like okay we'll fill out an exemption yeah went through that process and they go it'll be uh granted tomorrow or you can fly home so I went to hotel quarantine and basically once you got in there yeah you were stuck and that was like you couldn't talk to anyone you couldn't call anyone six days well originally they were saying 14 and I was like so who, who pays for that they pay for it because it's not something that you've, you uh, know, signed up for. Yep. So they pay for it, which it wasn't really the problem. It was more that You're going everyone's at the racetrack yeah. and I'm sitting here stuck in quarantine and Just I couldn't even go from home. Andorra, like from Spain, yeah. to go to Adelaide. Yeah. Like it's a big journey. Yeah. Jeez. So that's how it happened, eh? That's how it happened. And then obviously they turned up at the track on Saturday Arvo mm. and picked up Senna and put him in under the same guides that the rules had changed to 14 yep. days. So I'm guessing it's just because we were on the flight and, yeah. you know, they had a record of us flying in. So if we'd driven, it may have been different. But it just, yeah, we just got caught out with the rule change being yeah. unlucky timing and situation. There's a couple of other semi-profile people that would have been pretty tied up in that too, I reckon. I'm not sure. I, I don't yeah. know the exact timelines of everyone, yeah. but... I, I know there was a couple, a couple other people. In in, and But even Jono, for example, he was on the same flights as us. It's the same deal. And yeah. when they turned up at the track, they were only asking for me and Senna. Yep. And I was already in quarantine and Senna was, you know, yep. obviously there. But Jono was there as well and they didn't ask. So it was just, yeah, the whole admin side of it just seemed really poor and So you basically executed. got put in jail. Like, <laughs> yeah, maybe tomorrow we'll get you out. But basically at that point it's all over. Yeah, once you were there, they were like, no, no, we've just got 14 days written here. I was like, oh, no. Yeah. Wow. That's not what you want. No, nah, no, <laughs> definitely not. So anyway. When, when, when we used to ride together at the Supermoto stuff, do you, did you ever think that you'd be doing this stuff now? Like what you're doing? Mm, no. no. No, not really. It's a big journey. Yeah, it is. And I guess it's not really something that you look at as a career either as a coach. Right. Like I, I, for myself, most – and probably most coaches in Australia, most are just part-time or do it for a hobby or, yep. you know, they have a real job outside of it. So to do it as my sole job, I never really thought that that would be the case. So, yep. yeah. It's a good journey. Yeah. yeah. I, I like it and I'm pretty happy with it. Happy to keep going with it. I'm stoked. Have you? And I, I, like we've spoken at Phillip Islands and different things and we don't get to catch up too much, but it's just cool to see where you've come from to, to do this. Like it's a... It's it's obviously a dream for for you to, to do it. Um, yeah, it's cool to cool to see where you've got to. Yeah, thank you. It's yeah. it's good. I'm enjoying the journey, and it'll keep going for a few years more yet. Awesome. Well, I'm gonna I want to come to Andorra. I reckon that sounds like a great place to be. So now we borders open in 12 days. We uh, never know. We might be able to get over to races again. Yeah, yeah. If you're in that part of the world, shoot us a message for sure. Be cool. Well, yeah. thanks for coming in. Appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you at the island. Thanks for having me. Cheers. That's all we have time for on today's show. 
If you get the chance, head over to YouTube and hit subscribe on the Talk and Chatter page. Also, head over to iTunes and give us a star rating and a review there. It all helps to get the podcast out there. A big thank you goes to everyone that's been doing this already, and uh, we'll be back with another show soon.